Hi, my name's Ali, and this is the Rus Files Unite podcast, where ordinarily we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. I say ordinarily because this time around we've got another bonus episode in which I am speaking to author Alex Christoffi, who has just released a new biography of the great 19th century Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky called Dostoevsky in Love. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Alex. Hi, Alex. Thanks very much for joining me. Uh, So we're going to discuss your book, Dostoevsky in Love. At one point, Dostoevsky, I think it was in a letter, lamented that if he had Tolstoy's resources, then he'd be able to have written something that would still be read in 100 years. Well, (laughs) as it turns out, he needn't have worried on that score This year is the 200th anniversary of his birth. It's about 140 years since he died. So why would you say that his work has endured this long? And what made you want to write a book about him? Yeah, it's a fascinating question because in some ways he endured despite actually having a pretty unpopular message during much of the 20th, 20th century. You know, one of the big things that he was trying to sort of say to Russian society uh, towards the end of his life was, you know, if we're not careful, we'll end up with, you know, a, a, a violent kind of socialism. Uh, and obviously that message went down like a lead balloon come the revolution. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, not exactly uh, the, the uh, literary figure that the Soviet Union was wanting to, to champion. No. It's kind of interesting doing a show about films normally is that there's a big long gap at the beginning of the Soviet Union, as far as I can tell, before his work starts to be adapted. Mm. At a certain point, it's kind of like, well, he's world famous, so we want the prestige. But, you know, in the few decades immediately following the revolution, it's like, nah, we're not touching that with a barge. Yeah, but but, but the irony is that actually he, in some ways, was one of the most devoted people to raising up the downtrodden, to giving people a voice if they were poor or perhaps disabled or people who were scorned by society like prostitutes. So in some ways, he, you know, he, he was a very compassionate person and he was doing all these interesting things with literature that, um, that you wouldn't necessarily associate with, with the, the kind of gentry type novel of, of Anna Karenina. So I, th- I think he's a really fascinating person and 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 i think the fact that you know you you can read a, a novel like crime and punishment uh today and it feels modern and it it feels like it's leaping off the page at you is just testament to his talent yeah quite often i mean we'll get on to adaptations uh, maybe later but often adaptations will just transpose his stories to the present day because yeah some of the trappings are different but the essential stories can work without too much without it seeming too far removed because as you say Anna Karenina it's very aristocratic which most people can't relate to but yeah uh, someone being a poor student okay maybe you can't (laughs) relate to the axe murder side of things Uh, but yeah the sort of trying to make ends meet and you know uh, difficult circumstances that's that's very very relatable so and in terms of your experience with him when when did you first first start reading his works and, and what prompted that well I, I remember picking up crime and punishment when i was sort of 17 years old 
in a bookshop and just being kind of, I suppose, shocked at the audacity because you think of, you know, at the time I thought of literature as being this thing that was very approved and it was something that sort of discussed, um, you know, social norms, I suppose, rather than challenging them too much. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't read a huge amount outside of like the classroom. And I suppose, yeah, the, the fact that someone could kind of create a protagonist who was supposed to be even vaguely sympathetic, whose avowed mission was to sort of knock someone over the head with an axe and steal all their money. I mean, it just, it just seemed kind of outrageous. I couldn't believe, believe it was allowed to be published now, let alone 150 years ago. In mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I kept reading him and, and I suppose I, I, he was one of those writers I kept coming back to because I always got something different from him. Um, and uh, and then later on, it was only a few years ago, I, I began to have this feeling that, that not as many people as I had assumed kind of knew very much about his life. And he had such an interesting, you know, even if he hadn't been a writer, he had a, such an interesting life. So I, mm. I guess just on, a, on the simplest level, I really wanted to sort of tell his story and to find an accessible way to, to talk about him for those who found him, his work maybe looked intimidating. Mm, yes, there there is there is a certain amount of the fact that just his most famous books are you know breeze blocks and yeah. you know high page count and you just can't. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. This is a big time commitment. I mean, obviously with uh, with lockdowns, you've got a bit more time maybe to read than you know people might normally have. Yeah. But yeah, he, he definitely has the you know incredibly famous but also incredibly intimidating reputation i was fortunate enough to read editions that were like heavily an- annotated so i'd kind of come across like the the elements of his story and yeah you're absolutely right yeah, often i guess the stereotype of a writer is well they spend their days hunched over their desk yeah. and that's about it but yeah in terms of in terms of incident you could definitely make not just a movie about his life, a miniseries, probably, yeah. and and you you certainly wouldn't be short of material. Um, so I wanted to talk about the approach that you that you took for the book because it's it's not in some ways it's not really a conventional biography. I mean, it it's chronological, but you've done this thing where you've like woven excerpts from both his his fiction and his letters and and his journal columns because he was you know people won't necessarily know that he was a novelist but he was you know to make his to make ends meet he he ran various journals with varying degrees of success so there's all this writing um and you've interspersed that through the story how did that idea come to you and uh was it was it hard to uh, to kind of persuade your publisher that that was how how the book should be? Yeah, it well, I mean, what was interesting to me was I knew he that there's this entry in one of his notebooks from late, later on in his life where he sort of says quite explicitly, "I would actually quite like to write my memoirs, but I'm already 56. I don't know if I'll have the time." Essentially, and and sadly, he was absolutely right about that. He did. He never got round to his memoirs. Yeah, his health was a state so <laughs> yeah. yeah you think you think from a modern perspective mid 50s oh yeah you've probably got plenty of years left but yeah 19th century plus you know chronic conditions and some yeah habits which we could get onto yeah yeah i mean not not least is his epilepsy which was you know he was told in his 30s that any basically any day of his life could be his last day because it was so severe 
uh, he he might just and, and you yeah. know there was no real way of managing it particularly back then. So he ne- he never got around to writing his memoirs, but he did have this kind of very clever way of weaving elements of his own memories and his own sort of sense impressions and things things that he had come across in his own life in with his fiction as a way of kind of um, making it more vivid. And I felt like some of the most powerful parts of his fiction were um, were drawn from life in, in some ways. So I wanted to see if it was possible to kind of get some of the book into the first person to make it feel intimate and give it the, the feeling of a kind of reconstructed memoir almost, albeit with bits of, uh, of, of my narration in the third person to, to join it all up. Yeah, the kind of the scaffolding to make it make sense. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I had a quite a clear idea that it would be a non-fiction book. I did. I mean, I talked to a couple of different publishers, and and one of them I think said, you know, my background is as a novelist, and they said to me, you know, why why don't you just write it as a novel? You don't have to do all the endnotes, and you know, you can you can kind of people will accept that you're creating a kind of fictionalized version, and and you know, that's obviously a bit more within my comfort zone. But I guess the, the the difficulty for me there was like some of the I think some of the best lines in the book are Dostoevsky's, and and it it somehow would have seemed disingenuous to me to sort of claim that it was all me, you know. Um, I, I I wanted to sort of show my working, uh, and I think there's also something kind of exciting about the you know there's this sort of tightrope walk of am, am I going to be able to pull it off? It's a it's an interesting idea, but is there a way of being original with it and without on the one hand you being original on, on the other hand not sort of just simply lifting whole pieces and, and kind of lacking originality um yeah so it, it ended up being a, a non-fiction book but um certainly at the creative end <laughs> yeah yeah for, i mean for, for my money like when i read the concept i kind of thought well that's a very interesting idea on paper but that sounds like it would be hard to pull off but you you manage it with it with a plum, and it's just yeah, oh, brilliant you. idea, brilliantly executed, and yeah, I, it was a really a real privilege to to read, yeah, yeah, inspired idea, and just and just really great to, especially for those who are like I mentioned, potentially intimidated by Dostoevsky's writing. Yeah. This is a good way of getting a lot of it, and then maybe that being a springboard to actually going and. And, and reading his work, because you'd hope that a biography would do that anyway. But because, you know, so much of it is his text. Um, my dilemma with this was just kind of like, oh, right, now I have to, like, reread all of the <laughs> novels I've already read and read all the stuff that I have, and I don't have time. Yeah, I feel like that's a compliment, though. If someone reads my book and then wants to read Dostoevsky, mm. then I've, you know, I'm basically just his hype man, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> otherwise, you know, yeah, otherwise it's you know totally obscure. No, no, but I, it's there is a thing about nineteenth, particularly nineteenth century authors that it's just kind of like there's a combination of them being intimidating and a bit kind of like unhip and like well, you know, dead white guys yeah. kind of thing. Um, and it's like, well, no, they are famous for a reason. It's just obviously read plenty of other stuff as well, but there is a reason their reputation is what it is but certainly you know you can understand Dostoevsky you know living his life not not thinking that in 
in a hundred years, people are still going to have heard of me. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas maybe Tol- Tolstoy probably probably thought that he would be. I, th- I think Tolstoy was quite anyway. full of himself, but, um, you know, with good reason, he was very talented. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tolstoy is one of those, you know, incredibly infuri- infuriating people who thinks they're a genius and happens to be right about that. It's yeah. bad enough when someone thinks that they're a genius and they're not, but when they're actually right, it's... it's Insufferable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, we, we digress. Um, so you decided on the title Dostoevsky in Love, which I feel like is a kind of a fun kind of twist on maybe Shakespeare in Love, because you think Shakespeare, yeah, romantic, that works. Dostoevsky, really? <laughs> yeah. Scary, scary beardy guy. Um, but there's a good reason for it, obviously. So there were three women in particular, Maria Izayeva, Polina Suslova, and Anna Snitkina, who had, you know, a huge impact on him. Could you tell us a bit more about those three women? Yeah, so it's structured around. I mean, you know, it has to be said he doesn't um, come to to be in love properly, in love and happily. So until kind of quite late on in his life, but he's um, he's it's not for lack of trying, you know. Oh my goodness! No. <laughs> As you say, there were these three. I mean, he he must have made proposals to about six women. But but there were three women who he, he really um, loved in different ways and uh, at different times in his life. And what I thought was really interesting, part of the reason that I structured the book uh, around them in a way, was it, in some ways they represent his his sort of um, maturing over over the years. His first love, Maria, who he meets out in Siberia, having been kind of basically exiled there, she was a kind of romantic figure with a big R. She was you know very. Uh, sickly and slim and pale and had a fiery temper and she was she was basically like the characters that he was reading in his his novels as a child of she was like the perfect sort of romantic heroine even to the extent of having a drunk drunkard husband who didn't love her and she was left in poverty when he died and she ended up sadly having consumption and and, uh, died too young um his his second love, who he actually met while um, he was already estranged from Maria, effectively. She was a young student, and they and kind of represented in some ways that this young student generation of of political radicals who he felt he needed to to connect with and talk to and and try to sort of bring them round, I suppose, so that so that he could kind of avoid Russia. Uh, collapsing. I mean, he was getting very, very involved in politics at this time, and Polina was a very political person. She's one of the very few people who, who could could dominate him as well. And you know, she is. You have to have a very forceful personality to uh, to be able to um, dominate a person like Dostoevsky. And and then his his third love was uh, who became his second wife, Anna was very much a, a committed Christian, a family person. Um, they had a very happy family together. They had four children. Uh, sadly, two of them died very young, which wasn't uncommon at that time. But it, it was her who, who really provided the family life that he'd wanted for a long time. And, and actually, she did a huge amount to secure his legacy. She collected so many of his papers and made sure editions of his works, proper editions were being published and, and that kind of thing. So she's... Um, that you know he he has a huge amount to thank her for oh my goodness yeah he 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 kind of really lucked out <laughs> yeah, uh by by meeting by meeting her because she was incredibly long suffering and he did you know 
I, I think, you know, judging from your book, her stabilizing influence did eventually kind of calm him down and, you know, help him get to a more stable place. But initially their their relationship was well, it's it's amazing that she put up with him, to be honest. <laughs> As yeah. uh, yes, that was that that was uh, that was my next going to be my next question is is that um, he was in many ways. I mean, we've talked about his health problems, but he was a very self destructive person in, in in some ways in terms of his in in terms of his habits, and he seems like he was often extremely bad tempered and not easy to to be around what was that like spending that much you know figuratively spending that much time around him was that quite hard work in some ways yeah it's a it's a funny one because you after a certain point of work I I think this must be true of of most biographers past a certain point you um you really start to you know when you when you've read the first thousand letters you, you start to kind of see where he's going wrong and almost you almost want to kind of tell him off as if he's a sibling or something you you know you you start to get a a relationship that that becomes close and I suppose could become unhealthy I think it's really important to or what was important for me was to be really clear about where I felt he was just way off off base or had kind of um gone off piste I suppose and either in his behavior or you know the certain beliefs that he subscribed to that I don't necessarily um and, mm, and actually of one of the things that I did while while writing the book was to try to create kind of layers in it so um there's obviously his words in his own words in the first person there's the third person narration which pretty much is still in his head it's kind of free and direct and and if if for instance he doesn't like a person then the third you know the third person narration would be pretty mean about them too <laughs> yeah there's plenty of that <laughs> yeah there, there's there's some of that <laughs> it's quite judgmental um but i i did think it was important <laughs> to create another layer that was really me um me the author mm. um so there are quite a few footnotes in the book where i quite consciously separate my own take from from his and or or kind of stand back I suppose at one at one removal, there's a kind of ironic distance because sometimes his behaviour isn't really um, defensible, uh, or, or you know, certain. Of, oh yeah, and <laughs> well, yeah. Having <laughs> having read the book, I, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh my goodness! I mean, partic- particularly the 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 gambling side of things, and the oh, well, I've got a system. It's like, yeah, sure you do, Fjorda. Has the system worked before? And it's just like, oh my goodness! I mean, you know, it's it's an addiction, so it's yeah. it's a terrible thing. But there's just, yeah, there's there's just like a an exasperation you feel with him, just like because eventually he does learn, but it, mm. it just takes so long, and he causes so much suffering in the process that you're just like, yeah, and the yeah, temptation you just kind of want to have a stern word with yeah, him. Yeah, and the because the, the temptation for me was it's so painful to witness that that your natural your gut reaction is okay it, it's painful i need to cut it down i need to just summarize mm. it and just say it was a terrible time and he kept it making the same mistakes but actually to to do justice to it you sort of have to show how much he how how low he falls how much he imposes on the, the people who care about him and kind of i i, I think it 
the the only way to really do justice to that period of his life is to to kind of show how bad it got rather than skimming over it i suppose yeah no i it was frequently a hard read for that reason but i think it was absolutely the the right choice and you mentioned you mentioned irony i i liked the fact that this wasn't a you clearly admire you know aspects of the guy's character and certainly his his work but you're not like reverential and like yeah, it doesn't have that, which is which is quite refreshing. Yeah, I mean, he's you know he's infuriating. You know, after all, he's a human being. Yeah, he's an absolutely <laughs> infuriating, man. But he's also, I mean, he's really funny and he's really generous with his time and with his possessions, and you know that that kind of to me that makes him more interesting. I mean, I don't think you could he he couldn't be written off as an angel or a devil. No, no, it was far more complicated than that. And I'm glad you mentioned the humor because that's something that definitely came out in in the book and it's not something i've always appreciated with with reading his work on the page but um i caught a bbc radio adaptation of uh, devils which i'd never actually read but there was a lot of kind of ironic humor and just just the way he paints a character and mm. just the just the kind of um i don't know it's it, it's it's kind of almost like jane austen like but in much less genteel surroundings, <laughs> you know, just these ridiculously self-deluded people who were, you know, convinced of their own brilliance. So, yeah, he's, you know, he is, he is, he is very funny. But with a lot of the self-destructive behavior, it's kind of baffling just because he's somebody with so much psychological insight. You kind of think, you know, if he turned that insight round on himself a bit more, he might have had, you know, a, a slightly easier time of things. But then again, he was he was you know suffering all sorts of health problems, and we haven't even touched on like the very dramatic, like not adolescence, but the his post adolescence, his twenties and his thirties. That that experience clearly would have a big effect on 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 anyone. Um, yeah, I think the mock execution uh, that he went through when he was twenty nine was you know in some ways it was it was the most traumatic uh, consequential day of his of his life because because you know none of us normally have to confront our own mortality at the age of 29 it's just not something we normally have to do so um i think it did it did kind of add that uh, a sense of urgency that maybe wasn't there in in some of his contemporaries mm, yeah and just some of the suffering like he endured in exile slash prison and also that he witnessed of the other prisoners it's just how you know, if the it's going to be a rare individual who who isn't that doesn't have some kind of outspill into into you know how that how they live their lives and um, yeah. Um, so one thing I did want to ask is um, he, he was obviously around at the same time as as many other famous Russian writers. Um, how, what was his relationship like with them? Yeah. Uh- he had a, a a circle of people around him that he he really admired and trusted, and they weren't wouldn't necessarily be recognisable names to us, unless you kind of study Russian literature in the nineteenth century. You know that they're, they're not household names. So people like Apollon Mykov, uh, Nikolai Strakov, who at the time were were you know influential and they, and they had their own um, readerships. One of the things, as you mentioned earlier, was that he he founded his own journal because he really wanted to sort of create his own group of writers and and to to push their own message. 
but he did have, I mean, he came into contact with many of the, the more famous writers. Um, one of the things that just constantly tickled me was his, his kind of on off French, what is basically a frenemy with Turgenev. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Turgenev, he, they met when they were in their twenties and, and Turgenev was really nice to him at first, but then sort of found him a bit dull company and, um, slightly overbearing so they st- wrote a kind of mocking poem about him with with their friend Nikrasov and um, uh, Dostoevsky was very humiliated by this but later on he um, he saw the novel Fathers and Sons and Dostoevsky just thought it was amazing and it was one of the very few journals that actually published a nice review about it at the time most people were pretty scathing. Yeah he, uh, Turgenev managed to alienate like both ends of the political spectrum with that yeah. like you know people who would normally disagree about everything like united with like no this uh, what Turgenev has written is completely out of order and not right yeah. by by trying to be a reasonable person he, he essentially alienated both left and right wings in, in different ways I think it's you know one person well that doesn't that doesn't sound like something that would happen today <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know exactly yeah so irrelevant um but yeah, he, I mean, he was a great writer, but he also was a passionate sort of Europhile and particularly loved Germany and opera. And eventually, you know, when Dostoevsky became, the older he got, the more he became convinced of uh, that Russia was kind of at the centre of world culture and, and that it was going to um, kind of unify the world in its way because it, it could kind of bring in all these elements of East and West and so on. And, and so his his whole like philosophy of life just completely clashed with Turgenev's and they had a, a huge argument. It didn't help that Dostoevsky owed uh, Turgenev money. He bought, he borrowed 50 thalers, thalers, um, German thalers from him in sort of 1963 or something like that. Uh, eight, eight, sorry, 1863. And uh, by the time he gave them back to Turgenev, he, he gave, paid the debt. I think the, the thaler was defunct. It was like, a long time afterwards, oh, right? <laughs> because that is around the time of the of the whole like German like gradual unification process. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, all, all these the currency got updated smaller states going before away. the debt yeah. did. So oh, yeah, that's pretty um <laughs> pretty special. Oh goodness, yeah. Uh, yes, I have. I have to say, I imagine a nightmare job would be being. Dostoevsky's accountant because just all of the all of the people asking him for money yeah. and all the people who've lent him you know all this different money and different currencies I imagine that probably ended up being Anna's job a lot of the time yeah um, and poor Anna yeah. I mean he was so bad with money people people when people say oh I'm bad with money what they mean is like oh I meant to spend five pounds on lunch but I spent seven like Dostoevsky <laughs> accidentally lost his mother-in-law's house for instance. I mean, he was really it's bad with really money. really bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Just, like, patience of a saint. Any- yeah. <laughs> uh, anyone spending, yeah, you know, extended time with him, you know, um, especially Anna. But, yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about politics uh, already. Now, what I'd gathered prior to reading your book, there was he started off, essentially as as a sort of left-wing uh maybe not revolutionary himself but he hung out in those circles and then later on in his life when he becomes you know really really famous he's 
more of a right wing reactionary. But that it's not quite as simple as that, is it? Is it? I mean, I think that probably is the prevailing view. I what I was trying to do was to kind of marry up what he said about himself with with the view that we've inherited from from other academics and scholars and. I mean, I think he felt quite strongly that he was trying to find a middle path between the left and the right. Um, and some of the things that he cared about most weren't necessarily uh, kind of mutually exclusive. So, you know, the the thing that he was eventually locked up for in his youth was trying to emancipate the serfs, which was, I mean, it was a, a kind of a left-wing cause, but it, it was it was a broadly a liberal cause. It wasn't it wasn't an outrageous um thing to be agitating for at the time uh it was just it was he he was arrested as part of a kind of general clampdown on civil society because there'd been all these revolutions in like 1848 in italy and you know the tsar was basically scared that um that the, the intelligentsia might kind of right lead an uprising against him and so he kind of preemptively rounded up some likely suspects so this idea mm. of him as yeah, a kind yeah, of yeah. hardcore left-wing person you know, there, there is truth to it, but it's, he, you know, I don't think he ever really identified himself as a kind of left-wing radical in that way. And then on the flip side, at the other end of his life, you, you have him, um, I mean, definitely he, he was socialising with some very, very conservative people. He edited a conservative journal and he had, he just also had some views that we would think of now as pretty un, unsavory when he was writing Mm. Um, his writer's diary, which was like his sort of self-published journal. It was very, very popular at the time, but it was pretty jingoistic and nationalistic. He didn't, he didn't have uh, very modern views on uh, Jews and the place of Jewish people within the Russian state. All of this, I think, you know, I, 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 I don't think we should minimize that. I think he, by our standards, he was anti-Semitic and, and that's not, the part of his his worldview that I can really identify with, I, I, you know, I don't think anyone would defend that part of his worldview. Um, but it's also within the context of a, a Russia that was kind of institutionally anti-Semitic. You know, this guy wasn't mm, kind yeah, of out yeah. on his own. Uh, and at the same time, you you had national movements springing up in front. You know, Victor Hugo really thought that France was going to be the centre of world culture, and you know, Paris would be the very centre, but it would be like federal Europe, and Dostoevsky basically thought the same thing about Russia. So he, you know, he was really nationalistic. But it, in the context of the time, I think, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't judge him uh, too much or, or, or kind of write him off as being um, ha- having deeply unsavory views for for the time. I think he, there were certainly a couple of views mm. uh, that, that we wouldn't subscribe to today. But I actually think there is a continuity between those two ends of his life. I don't think there's a huge, people sometimes paint it as if there's this huge contradiction and he completely has this vault fast. And actually, I think his views do progress over time, but but probably you could see continuities there across his whole life. And he he also got published by journals on both sides of the the spectrum Mm -hmm. as well. So it seemed like he had connections with people you know, it in the intelligentsia, kind of like across across the spectrum. So, yeah, he he wasn't, you know, exclusively keeping himself to one one section or or the other. And and certainly from reading his his writings, he um, he can seem quite sympathetic to to characters who are very very far from 
what his own beliefs would have been, and you wouldn't necessarily know that those were his beliefs if you didn't know them just from reading his characters, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think he really, one of the things he believed in very passionately was sort of the idea of free speech and dialogue and talking through ideas. You know, obviously the, the problems with free speech that we have, uh, that we're talking about in 2021 are partly to do with bad faith. But I think he believed that, you know, if you take for granted that everyone has good faith, you can you can talk openly about ideas and what do we want politics to look like? What do we want society to look like? And eventually, you know, if you talk enough and you think enough, you'll you'll come to a good answer. Mm, yeah, there's there's very much a kind of like having to engage with the other side's ideas to kind of sharpen one's own mm. and actually like take them seriously and not always dismiss them out of hand. But yeah, as you say, there's, there's there can be quite a lot of bad faith argument out there, and that that doesn't help anything. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Well. This has been great. I, you know, thank you very much for being so generous with your time. But there was one question I did want to ask before we finish. This being normally a, a film podcast, I had to ask, uh, are there any adaptations of Dostoevsky's work that you've seen and enjoyed? Yeah, there's... Um, so there's the famous Crime and Punishment from 1935, which was directed by Joseph von Stabberg. It It's absolutely terrible, but... It's got Peter DeLore in it. And I, I, oh, I worth love, the price of admission. I love Peter Laurie. He's just amazing. And once you've seen him play Raskolnikov, he, he kind of ruins it for you forever uh, in the way that you can imagine <laughs> would. Um, I, I would watch anything with Peter Laurie in it. Uh, the, the, the really good, there's a Russian language series of Dostoevsky's life, which is really good from about 2010, I think, which is up on Amazon Prime. So I'd really recommend that. Um, but my favourite, the, the one that I think is, um, it, it's a quite a loose adaptation, but definitely worth watching. It's actually a film short by Martin Scorsese called Life Lessons. Um, it was oh okay. It was part of an anthology called New York Stories, which I think was organised by Woody Allen. Um, certainly, Woody's Woody Allen's got one of the one of the three uh, short films, but one of them's by Scorsese. And it it's it sort of loosely follows the plot and and the time in Dostoevsky's life when he was writing a, a novel called The Gambler. Uh, so you you've got an artist who's trying to paint, but he's also sort of tormented by this, uh, you know, what, what for Dostoevsky was Polina. Um, it becomes Pauline in the in the film. It, it's not pretending to be set in the roulette tables of Baden Baden in 1863, but it but it's. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's in modern day Manhattan, but it's very true to the spirit. And I, I think it's a, it's a lovely short actually. And not, not, I don't think particularly well known. Oh, not at all. I'd, I'd never heard of it. So I'm very keen to, to, to check that out. Um, I'm a big fan of Kurosawa's adaptation of, of the idiot oh, yeah. uh, from the 1950s. That's, it's long enough between me watching the film and reading the novel to be able to actually comment on how faithful it is as an adaptation, but it's it's really good and just you know kind of gothic and cool, uh, <laughs> you know from the from the sublime to the ridiculous. I've not seen this, but just the fact that it's out there makes me very very curious. There's uh, a very late fifties adaptation of the Brothers Karamazov with William Shatner of all oh, people God. as uh, as uh, <laughs> as uh, Alexei Karamazov, which is just kind of like. 
Okay, that's that's got to be that's got to be an interesting watch. So uh, maybe I'll get around. Wow, to that it sounds awful. Day, yeah, I might watch the Kurosawa instead. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that might be the way to go. <laughs> but yes, on that note, uh, thanks thanks again very much for your time. This is this has been really really fun, and yeah, can't re- uh, recommend your book enough. Oh, thank you very thank much. You. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the Roost Files Unite podcast. If you're listening from the UK, you can pick up a copy of Dostoevsky in Love and financially support the show at the same time. And you can do that by clicking the uk.bookshop.org affiliate link in the show notes as those aren't always the easiest to find, depending on what your podcatcher is, I'll also be including that link on the show's various social media channels. So check those out too. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the moment. If you're listening from outside of the UK, then you should be able to pick up Dostoevsky in Love from wherever you normally get your books. Thanks again for listening and goodbye.